ConnectCloud. Get connected, cyber safe is our mantra. From tailored managed security solutions to our next generation cloud platform, MetCloud will drive your organization forward and help it thrive. You can keep up to date with us in all things cybersecurity by following us on Twitter at MetCloud underscore com. We're also on LinkedIn and YouTube. You can find the links to our social media pages and blogs via our website, metcloud.com. Welcome back to another episode of the Vanguard Podcast, everyone. And my guest today is Rob Sprackling, who is someone you may not have seen before, but you'll have definitely watched one of his movies. Rob is an experienced screenwriter and award-winning director, best known for the Disney animated movie Nomeo and Juliet, starring James McAvoy and Emily Blunt, with, of course, the music of Elton John. More recently, he co-wrote the screenplay for The Queen's Corgi, which starred Jack Whitehall, and in total, these two movies alone took a whopping $250 million at the Worldwide box office. Rob has an extremely impressive resume working for the top US film studios, also a member of BAFTA, and also wrote a children's book, Born Again Ben, which he sold to Paramount Pictures. It seems Rob does it all, and there's no signs of him slowing down anytime soon, as he's currently working on several new movies in development, two of which are already in pre-production. Rob, welcome to the Vanguard podcast, and thanks for joining me today. Pleasure, Scott. You know, one of the things I'd love for you to do, Rob, and I've read the bio, gone through everything, a fantastic overview into what you've achieved. Could you give us your five to ten minute potted history of of your career, where it started and uh, and where you are now? Of course, yeah. Well, it probably it'll run into like, you know, four and a half hours, but uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll try and place it down. Uh, yes, I was rubbish in school. Um, I, was, uh, I was kicked out at 15. I got two O-levels or something. Uh, and I was not terribly academic. I thought I was going to be an actor because I was quite good at showing off, and I got into a drama college in Cardiff where I studied for three years. Uh, about halfway through that, I realised I was also a terrible actor. Uh, I thought that's <laughs> all I had going for me, but uh, I was a very good over-actor, but not terribly good at actually just acting. So uh, uh, my mate, my best mate, uh, John, uh, at the time, uh, wrote a play and put it on in the college theatre and it was great and I went to see it and I remember just seeing him looking very pleased and proud of himself afterwards and feeling really annoyed uh, and jealous so uh, I just copied him basically I went home there's five of us living in a place including John and uh, I went back and started writing so I I wrote my first play there John directed it I started it we put it on it went down really well I loved doing it and then we put on both our shows together in the like local theatre in Cardiff and got like good reviews and like the financial times and things like this, and we're just, you know, a pair of wanky um, drama students. So uh, so we, it was a great start. Then from there, I kind of uh, I finished drama college. I went off in a slightly different direction. I bizarrely set up an accommodation agency in Cardiff, the Sprackling Accommodation Service, which lasted about four months, where I slowly went mad in the SAS uh, 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 in a room on my own realizing I really wasn't a small businessman and this was a disaster. And then I came up to London with John and two other mates and we and we moved uh, to Tooting in London. And I decided that I was going to go and try and become a uh, TV presenter. That was my big plan. So right. I came up, I, uh, I wrote to a load of people. I was on the dole. It was all a bit of a disaster. I got a few interviews. Nothing went anywhere. And I went along to this um, TV show, kids' TV show called Number 73, where they invited me along. 
and I met a comedian down in the in the canteen there, and I said, look, how did you get into this? You know, how did you get into the TV presenting? He said, well, I really, I'm just doing a bit on it. I'm a stand-up. Going to stand-up is a great way to launch yourself. So I went, yeah, okay, I'll do that. So I set up a comedy club in Brixton, went on the stand-up circuit, and it was really good. I actually learned how to do it. I did it two or three years, and then I ended up, I was headlining the comedy store, did a load of TV shows, and lo and behold, became a TV presenter because of it and got loads of TV presenting jobs. So uh, I, I kind of, because I got the TV presenting, I packed in the, the stand-up, started becoming a TV presenter, realized I was absolutely crap at being a TV presenter. Was <laughs> still good at being a stand-up, but I kind of only done it for the purposes of getting in here. And then this was now around about 1990, 1991, I guess I was kind of uh, around 29 at the time. And, uh, um, and then I decided I'm going to go and write a movie. So my old mate, John, who we wrote the first plays with, who I moved up to London with, who was hanging around on the doll still after I got off to be a TV presenter, I kind of teamed up with him because he had nothing else to do. And um, we became a writing partnership. We wrote a film. It was a disaster. No one, you know, we, we read it back. We were going to go to Hollywood and try and flog it. We read it back after spending, like, months writing it and just threw it in the bin. And then we wrote a TV series. We thought that might be a bit easier. Wrote a um, sitcom and sold it to Channel 4, and it got made. Um and then we got an, you know, I had a, a stand-up agent, but we got a kind of a, a, a writing agent off that. And then just started writing movies, started working with um, Henson's, uh, the Creature Workshop guys who did the yep. Muppets. Yep. And uh, wrote a movie and sold it to them, which was like an animation movie. Uh, and then we just kept every movie we wrote, we just sold it. We sold it. We got a really good agent in London. We got an L.A. agent, you know, flown out to Hollywood, got hired on to do loads of different movies out there. And kind of it all took off from there. So I've been kind of there and thereabouts ever since, uh, about kind of five, six years ago. Me and John kind of went our separate ways. We're still very good mates, but we worked together on stuff occasionally. But by and large, we write our own stuff. And that's been great. It's meant I can move into directing, which is something I've wanted to do for many years. Uh, and I now um, take to, to direct a, a movie which I've written, which is like a $25 million kind of animation movie. And I'm and, um, writing kind of, whatever kind of comes to to heart at the time and and so i'm really feeling very creatively fulfilled at the moment so so life's great and uh it's been a blast it sounds well that that was under five minutes so well done okay. yeah well done by the way that was brilliant what did i come in at there what was that about? it was about 459 so oh, very good. <laughs> <laughs> so really that, that was brilliant well done um one thing that that gets me and and um it came through in the in, in the four minute overview was a couple of things one was um the inspiration behind um, your pivots within within your career, you know, from from rubbish at school, you pivoted to okay, I'm going to be I'm going to be in uh, an actor. Uh, you said in your own admission, you were crap at that, but <laughs> your best mate John did this, so you pivoted to to do that, and then all of a sudden you spoke to someone else, and they said you should be in comedy, so you pivoted. So your pivots in your career early on were really uh, inspiration by, dare I say it, either colleagues or, uh, you know, friends, but did they actually became mentors at all? Or did you, did you look to, you know, hunt out any mentors in the various roles or various positions that you, you started to go down? 
it's an interesting question. I, I, I don't think I'm a very mentory type person. I, I like being a mentor to other people. Okay. And I know mentoring is really important for a lot of people, and a lot of people get a lot out of it. Um, I, outside of my father, who was definitely a mentor and yep. gave me great wise advice and guidance. I mean, he was, he was in the army. He has nothing to do with my industry, but he, he was a really smart guy and, and always had great advice. So if anyone's been a mentor, it's been him. Yeah. Um, and possibly my big brother, who uh, is a wonderful guy, who's always given me great advice and always been there for me. So, so outside of family, yeah. not really in industry. I, I've always been, I think the reason for that is I've always kind of been quite self-aware, I think. I've always been aware of my strengths and weaknesses. And I've, I've always had a desire, I've always been ambitious to go and do something with my life. And and to such an extent, and because I'm kind of relatively self-aware, when I realize, when I see something that I know is right, or that indeed I know is wrong that I'm doing, yeah. Yeah. I'm, fairly, I'm fairly good at recognizing it pretty quickly. Right. You, go, you know, what that guy's doing right is right, or what that woman's doing is right, what I'm doing is wrong. And it literally, I don't need any further encouragement from that moment. At that moment, my mind is literally made up. And I do make kind of clear, strong decisions about what my next move is. Um, and they don't come that often, obviously, when you do a kind of five-minute process of an entire, you know, 45 years or something. You know, it, it, it can sound like, as you say, and it does sound like there's a lot of pivots there. Yeah. But 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 actually, you know, across an entire life, you know, that when I've made, you know, it was 30 years ago I decided to be a writer, and I'm still a writer. So yes, yeah, of course. Um, you know, it, it's kind of you know that those pivots were kind of probably earlier on in the game when I'm still trying to find my milieu and what what I'm really good at and what I really enjoy. So, um, yeah, yeah, windy answer, but there we are. No, no, it's a great answer because um, I I spoke about this with um, a a previous guest we had um, a a few weeks ago, Phil, um, who's into sports psychology, and and we were talking about kids these days going through O-levels, A-levels. I'm not sure what – I think they're A-levels, aren't they, and GCSEs and so on. Yeah, my my youngest boy's doing A-levels right now. Yeah, and my youngest son, uh, my oldest child my son um is going through uh gcse so therefore um he's trying to understand what he wants to do in his life what he wants to do in his career and one of the things that we say to him like any like any child um that has some form of sporting ability they want to be a professional sportsman obviously um play for australia of course um and and (laughs) um but you know that's that's a that's a very very hard thing to achieve what I'm, what what i think you've you've clearly highlighted here is you know don't be afraid to 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 change until you find what's right for you you know um would that be something that you would encourage find what's right for you and then go in and 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 you will find your way you will find your path i think that's a really great great question um just just to drill into that is is that I always was of the mind, you know, when I was running this accommodation agency, which was a terrible idea um, and clearly totally wrong for me. And um, as I said, I only lasted about six months. While I was doing that, I was thinking, I cannot change. I've, I've set out my stall, you know, I must have been, what, I don't know, 22 or something at the time or 21 or something. I've set out my stall. This is what I'm doing. And it's weakness and failure and a failure to apply myself and show kind of dedication and focus and drive if I give up. Yeah. Um, and I, I've always 
kind of been really on that through my life because, as you say, I've, I've given things up quite a few times <laughs> and moved. And I've always been really, am I giving this thing up because of weakness and a failure to apply myself Great call. and cowardice? Yeah. Or am I giving something up because it's the wrong thing and I need to be doing something else? Uh, and what I can say is, is, is both re- are really important because if you are giving something up simply because you don't have enough backbone to do it and, and to drive at it, then that really is failure and it's yep. a really bad idea to give something up. Agreed. Doing, carrying on doing something which is totally wrong for you and is not going to give you the rewards you re- really want long term is itself cowardice. And so the the opposite actions can both be cowardice. And divining and knowing which one's which, you have to really search your soul and you really have to ask yourself the question, you know, am I just giving this up because it's too tough and I'm not being kind of strong enough? Or am I giving this up because it's a really dumb thing to be doing and I'm in a hole and I'm digging and get out of the hole and go and do something else? Um, and and I, I think I'm pretty sure that in pretty much every occasion I made the right call. Yeah. And uh, and I often say to young people, you know, there is that desire, oh, I don't want to look weak, I don't want to give something up. But giving something up is maybe the bravest and the smartest thing you can do. Yeah. And always be prepared to give something up. If you know in your heart this is absolutely not going to give you the long-term rewards that you really want from life. I, I think that is a fantastic overview. I really do. There's, you know, one another previous guest, Luke Swan, who was a, uh, who's a, you know, professional cricket uh, coach previously with Northamptonshire, or um, does a presentation called um, "Failure is a Path to Success." Because yeah. let's face it, every cricketer doesn't go out and make a hundred every week. You know, yeah. they they fail on their way to you know getting a hundred or getting a fifty or getting you know competitive scores on a week in week out basis. So part of that failure is part of life's journey. It's great. I mean, we could go on for this for ages. I I, I think it's a it's a it's a riveting subject. And you know what? Um, I don't care. You know, you, you're a fantastic award winning uh, director. Whether you're sweeping the streets, whether you're you know trying to find your next role, people have inspiration and 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 you know, life experiences. And I think that's one of the, that's one of the reasons why I like doing this podcast because we hear, we hear definitions of success and failures and all that from all walks of life. And I love that. That's one of the reasons why I do this. So getting a bit yeah. philosophical there, Rob. No, sorry. I totally agree. And just to jump in on that briefly is just, yeah, I, I, I admire people who are themselves, who've built the lives that they wanted for themselves. And, yeah. I, and, and uh, I don't care whether they're a nurse or a teacher or a, a film star or whatever the hell they are. Yeah, uh, I admire those people, and and uh, and and you know when you get older, you can see those people who 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 are fulfilled in that way and know that they are themselves because it's writ large uh, upon them, and uh, and I admire that. Oh, so do I. So do I. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you before we go on to another one of the other subjects, I wanted to say, you know, with all the success you had with with the Queen's Corgi and Romeo and Juliet and 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 your sitcoms and so forth, with you know, in those early days, were there any movies or books or TV shows that that you think have inspired you further or inspire you now with some of the current work you're doing? Yeah, I get early on, you know, like kind of most kids my age, I was like massively into Monty Python. Monty Python yeah. was like, you know, in school, everyone would just repeat 
all the sketches and stuff. And you watch Monty Python back now, and a lot of it's entirely shit. But but the <laughs> but the great stuff is still great. And Absolutely. The, movie, the movies are uh, remain, I think, amongst the best films ever made, uh, let alone comedies. You know, Life of Brian in particular. Uh, and 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 I guess that kind of style of absurdist comedy uh, and kind of uh, character-led comedy a lot um, kind of did was really my inspiration as a as a young guy. That's the stuff I would laugh at and find funny and and enjoy. So when I started writing with John, you know, we we wrote this film called Mike Bassett, England Manager, which is a kind of Spinal Tap for soccer. Of course, yeah. Um, with uh, Ricky Tomlinson in it, and it's a kind of mock documentary about the, British, uh, the English football team going to uh, a World Cup in Brazil and making fools of ourselves, as we usually do. Um, and so, uh, uh, and and you know, when we were writing that, and certainly in our early days writing, we would write. I imagine how Life of Brian was written, which is basically said, okay, we've got this ridiculous kind of time in Judea in in zero, you know, BC or whatever. Yeah. Uh, what what was going on there? Oh, they stoning people, weren't they? And the Romans were going around bossing people about like they were like the bloody uh, head boys in a school. And 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 you know, and, and what were all everyone's going around believing in different religions because they're all desperate to follow something. And 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 they probably just did a greatest hits of that period without thinking about plot or essential character or a story or a payoff or anything. They just probably just dived in and said, what is funny, like a sketch show? Let's do a sketch show from the year zero. What would be funny about that? Um, people selling beards so women can get into it. I don't know, whatever lepers wanting to be cured, who've already been getting money because they've already been cured. You know, just taking the piss out of that, that period. Absolutely. And we kind of did the same technique with Mike Bassett. We said, what are like the funny things that happen in football? What are the stupid things that people say? What are the ridiculous situations you always find? Who are the ridiculous characters who inhabit that world? You know, and, and let's just think of funny things about that without any story or plot whatsoever. And then from that, you've almost got a pool of material, which you can then kind of fashion together and go, hang on, if we got a running order like this, 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 and this, that happens at the end of the first act, that's what happens at the end of the second act, this is what happens at the beginning, this is what happens at the end. Okay, we got a kind of story, but you're fashioning a story from already pre-devised sketches. And as a consequence of that technique, which is quite rare, and is very much, I think, what Monty Poston must have done in Life of Brian and what we definitely did with that, is it means you get, like, funny scenes, one banking on the back of the other, uh, with a kind of low, um, uh, lo-fi plot, which doesn't have to drive everything and it's all about plot. You can just sit in with the characters and the fun and have a, like a, a really funny movie, uh, with obviously, which you shape into a story by the end of it. Of course. So, so very long-winded, but essentially, yes, that, that really did inform us a lot. And uh, But then since then, you kind of get into movies, things like Toy Story. Yep. You're watching those kind of movies come out. And I think like the animated movies of recent, the last 20 years, have been the best animated. It's a golden era uh, for which Pixar and Aardman and, and DreamWorks and what have you have been responsible largely. Uh, and, and seeing them shape movies and how they do that with you know big emotional beats, character payoffs, great comedy, songs... Uh, you know, big visual uh, events and, and put all that into a movie. I think at the moment, you know, that that's just amazing and that I find inspiring too. You know, it's, it's a great segue into a question I was going to ask you around innovation. You know, and and you you probably you you started it with with Toy Story, which is 
you know, for for a lot of people, that was probably one of the most would I, would I would I say world renowned or popular animation movie that came out? You know, seminal, seminal. Movie. Yeah, seminal. I I would think so. Certainly the most digested of of, of the population around the world. You know, and yeah. then, and it spawned you know all of these all of these magnificent animation movies. Yeah, um, including yours, of course, too, Rob. If data had a sound, it could be this. The sound of important and sensitive information leaking out of your business. MedCloud. Get connected. Cyber safe. Um, innovation from you know from Walt Disney back in the 40s and 50s with you know flip pads and all that to to animation now you must have seen some massive massive innovative leaps and bounds in in your industry yes uh, you know and, and obviously I don't come from uh, come to animation which obviously I work a lot in from that yeah. te- technical side and I no. guess if you were speaking to somebody on that technical side they'd, they'd be able to say 10 times even more so because obviously CGI, Toy Story was the first CGI movie and that completely changed, uh, you know, how animations and how animations were, were made and, and, and with the budgets of, you know, being able to do CGI now on a, on a home computer pretty much, yeah, of course. It's meant that, you know, it's really democratized the process. Whereas old, you know, hand-drawn 2D animation you, you, only studios could make that because it would take, you know, you'd have to have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people doing it of for years and years to get super a movie. Supercomputers, everything. And now it's super, yeah. so, so it's really democratised the process. A lot more movies can get made, which are CGI, but still, you know, and, and the technology's escalating and getting stronger and better and faster so much quicker uh, all the time that, that you know, what, what only, you know, Disney could have done 10 years ago, pretty much anyone can do now. Yeah. Um, so, 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 so that has had massive changes, just purely on the technical front, and and allowing access to the industry, um, and to and make those movies. But, but, but in terms of just purely from my perspective, which is from a writer's perspective and writing story, yeah, you know that that again, it was just as innovative in how Toy Story delivered that, and then you know ones that came after like Shrek and what have you. Um, you know, and, and Wally and Up and, you know, just a load of really fabulous films that came out after that, which, you know, whereas animation movies before were kind of for kids and so kind of the level of, you know, thought that went into the quality of the story, the characterization, the, the dialogue, the humour, all that stuff. Right now, I think you'd find that's the best in the world. Better, you know, now adult films supposedly are just like Marvel stuff and it's all, yeah. I think, those scripts by and large, some great exceptions, but by and large, pretty rudimentary. Yeah. You look at the animation scripts, they are of the highest quality. You have huge emotional journeys and payoffs and surprises. Yeah. Worlds, you know, which, which are inside out, you know, what a brilliant idea. Someone inside the kid's head. Brilliant. And, brilliant movie. And great themes like learning that 
embracing how to be sad is not a bad thing. Don't be scared to be sad. You know, it's a natural part of the process of, of moving forward. Uh, and things like this, which are, tell me an adult story out there, movie, which has got as big a theme, as wise a point, and as emotionally moving and a rich kind of uh, uh, um, uh, outcome as that. It, there isn't one. And so mm. that's what I think animation purely on a writing to have is is top draw now. It's the best in the best of any genre for me, uh, and I think that's been the really interesting thing that's happened in the last twenty years. Not just the technical developments. No, that, that's a that's a really good overview, actually. And do you think too, from a from a a, a studio point of view, um, the 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 financing and and the the ability to back some of these smaller potential. Uh, opportunities or scripts or movies that are presented to them now, they're, they're taking more of a risk on, on the animated ones than, than you know, standard films, if, if that's a word? Well, I think what's happened is it used to be purely studio, American studios could make animation pretty much, yeah, you know. Yeah. Uh, you'd get maybe some European and a, a bit of UK, um, uh, but the, just the cost of making them was pr- prohibitive. And then... Also, these guys, you know, if they're making something which is like $150 million, $200 million to make, then you're going to have to spend at least that marketing it. Um, and so, you know, you, the only way, the only people who can afford to do this are studios. Um, because the costs have come down with the technical dev- uh, advances, it means that actually, you know, European animation, Australian animation, I'm doing a movie with an Australian company right now. Great. Um, you know, uh, uh, you know, the, you know, British animation. There's, there's many more companies can now make a movie, and they can make them around the 25 million, 20 to 25 million, maybe 30 million dollar. You know, a lot of Canadian companies. Uh, and so, what it means is, is there's many more animations getting made. Um, and 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 to be honest, the studios aren't making any more because they only have a set amount they can afford to fund and release, and they don't want to be competing with their own films. So, so what's happened is I think within the studio system, they've stayed fairly selective and it's all been kind of just the movies they're making and, and they haven't changed a huge amount and getting one of those off has always been really, really hard uh, because they maybe make two or three in a, in a year, um, you know, uh, uh, but, but there's many more opportunities to go elsewhere and some really great imaginative stuff being done, um, you know, at a lower price point. Uh, but with maybe a, a more of an auteur feel, a more of a creative feel in Europe and and, and elsewhere. So, um, so yeah. So I think that that's that's what's broadened the opportunities. So it's great. It's, it's really insightful, actually. There, there's one of the things I want to um, ask you as a general question, and that is, you know, there's so many types of media around right now: social, TV, films, everything like that. Do you find it hard to switch off? I don't, but I'm I'm an extremely lazy person, uh, which is really really helpful. Yeah. I also I also like drinking a lot and hanging out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so so all this comes together in a fabulous confluence of me sitting on my ass in my back garden getting drunk. So uh, so I I I do switch off. I I have got an off button, and I know friends who are in the industry who don't have an off button and are constantly on it. And and you know uh, and they uh, you know they're great they're really good at what they do but they do get fried you know I, I I couldn't stay on that long because I, my brain would just fuse and I'd just clonk conk out so I do love kind of just stopping getting away from it 
going to the pub with my mates, hanging out with my family, having a laugh with my kids and my wife, yeah. and, and just going doing other things and totally switching off. So weekends, I do not work. Evenings, I do not work. Awesome. You know, I absolutely separate you know, work and life, even though I work from home, I have a very clear uh, delineation between those things. And uh, unless there's a, like a real emergency, we're really up against the cost, we got a kind of deadline and start shooting. Okay, I'll work into the night on those cases. Of course, of course. But, but very rarely. And uh, and I do like to delineate my time. That's a that's a great one. There's one thing I wanted to ask you, and 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 that is, you know, there's this public perception around culture within TV, film, and that that it's a real dog eat dog, bitchy type of industry. Is it fair? Is it fair, or the teams that you work with? Is it is the culture actually? You know what? We're a really good team here. We're producing something that's special, and it's going to be, you know, whether it's inspirational or, um, you know, funny, or it's going to be the legacy. It's going to be there for a very, very long time to see. So we're all going to be proud and mucking together. Is the public perception of the industry, you know, the dog eat dog bitchy world, fair, or is it just, you know, because it sells papers and magazines? Um, I think it, it it can be there, and it has been there. I haven't experienced that. I yeah. wouldn't deny that it's there. But I don't think it's the rule. I think the rule is normally people are decent, you know. Yeah. Most people you work with are actually great and, and really enjoyable to be with and straight, you know, in terms of, like, honesty and decency and, and levelling with you. And, and, uh, and everyone, there is, you know, it's just like any kind of team – Thing, there is a sense of, all right, we're, we're all, you know, just like being in a football team or something. Yeah. When it's good, there's a sense of, right, we've all got each other's back. There's all a mixed bag of people with a variety of different talents. Certainly when you're making a movie and when you're collaborating with producers and what have you or, or writing or working with directors, there's a sense of, like, we're, you know, if this all goes well, we're going to end up, you know, winning the league. And so we're all pulling together and we all want this to work. Now, obviously, just like with any team, there's occasionally someone you don't get on with or it all, you know, there's people, it, it all goes a bit wrong. And that, that obviously can get a bit ugly. Um, but I don't think there's more of that in this industry than in others particularly. Um, I think perhaps maybe Hollywood in the old days was quite a lot like that and there was right. it was pretty cutthroat. Um, and maybe a bit more there than, than in other places. But having just come back from this Annecy Film Festival in France, which is like the biggest animation film festival in the world, you got all these European animators down there. And honestly, they are just the nicest people I've ever met. You, you sit in a restaurant and everyone knows each other and then like three people will pass and join you. No one's good. It's not about egos. It's all just everyone's a really just genuinely friendly, up for a laugh, laugh at themselves. No kind of, you know, prima donnas or pains in the arse. It's just actually decent people who really uh, are fun to work with. So so I think, you know, I think it's much better than maybe the image. Yeah, and 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 to be honest with you, it sound, doesn't sound dissimilar to any any office bank insurance yeah. company out there in the high street, right? It's, it, you know, it's probably just a bigger, it just gets more press, Unfortunately, yeah. yeah, and there's always twats and everything, and, and exactly. sure there are in RSC, but 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 yeah, but people are nicer than you'd imagine, I think. There's a lot of those people in every industry, <laughs> Rob. So so that's all good. One of um, uh, I, I've got to ask you this because it's been a bit of a film. Uh, so here's my thing: my genre, 
um, as uh, as a fifty year old has always been British war films from the fifties, uh, late forties, fifties. You know, uh, the Dam Busters, Great Escape. Um, or, you know, Bridge yeah, Too Far, okay. all, all, all the great, you know, Battle of Britain, you know, Battle of Britain. How do you get that many famous people in one movie? You know, Kenneth Moore, one of the greatest actors in my in my experience because he played Douglas Bader so well. Um, is is there one movie that you wish you could have directed or produced in the in the history of cinema? Uh, I, it's strange. My brain doesn't really work like that because if okay. there's a film that I really love. Then it's already succeeded, and I and I don't want to direct it because I I wouldn't do it as well as that. And 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 you know something comes when you get it as a member of the audience, it comes kind of pre-packed. You're getting whatever they wrote, whatever they directed, whoever they cast, and you're getting that, and that's what you're appreciating. And then to then retrospectively deconstruct that, and you know it, it, it kind of you accept it on its own terms. Having said that, having said that, I have one <laughs> bugbear, right? And it's yep. actually about a movie that you mentioned, which I absolutely love, right? And and that is The Great Escape, right? I, yeah. I absolutely love that movie. Yep. I was a British Army kid, brought up with Army Dad, living in Germany and stuff, and we'd yep. go around getting in fights with the German kids back in, you know, because, you know, back then you're allowed That's to what do you did, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, shitty stuff. And, like, we were horrible, obviously. And, uh, uh, and uh, but you're in a sort of like, oh, right, we're still in a state of war. So, so like, uh, Where Eagles Dare and, you know, Guns and Navarro and all those oh, films. Yeah. We would just love all that shit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, the thing which always just bugged me about The Great Escape was uh, the casting of um, uh, uh, Richard Attenborough mm-hmm. as the main English guy. Big X, yeah. And, and, and that the, the reason that really annoyed me is because we got Steve McQueen. Uh, you know, I'm a proud Englishman, right? Of course. Steve, Steve McQueen is just so super cool, right? And he's the yank, and there he is, and he's going around doing his bit on the motorbike and throwing the ball against the wall. He's like, oh, you're just great, you are. And then we got the kind of British counterpart, and Richard Edwards, a wonderful actor, obviously brilliant director, lovely man, but he's all a bit like, oh, jolly good old chap, sir. You think we might, might have a crack at Tom, Dick, and Harry later? <laughs> and he's like one of these blokes. He's been like, you're not that. Couldn't we get Richard Burton? Can we just get Richard Burton to be that guy? And he'd have just had a bit more bite, yep. and a bit cooler, yep. and a bit like, oh, you're representing the Brits. Great, get out there, Burton. But instead, we have this kind of, you know, yeah, well-meaning kind of thing, which obviously, you know, was what they wanted for the part. But I just thought, if you had the guy who was running the kind, because he was like the, the brains behind the thing, and if you had a bit more cold steel about him and a bit more Burton about him, mm-hmm. you know, or a Daniel Craig today, or absolutely. You know, Someone like that, you'd think, oh man, you're super cool. Yeah, you're like the you're the, the leader, a bit like Burton was in in uh, Where Eagles Dare. Yep. You're the leader. Eastwood's like the cool guy, but you're like the leader, and you're like on top of it. Yeah. Uh, and so that was the only change I would ever make: cast Richard Burton instead of Richard Attenborough. That's yeah. All I've got. And and I would absolutely agree with that. With the Aussie in the film, played by James Coburn, yes. um, who should have been Peter Finch, in my opinion, who was in Rats of Trabrook and all those, you know, yes. a pretty famous Aussie guy back then but um yeah. anyway so Cameron, I'm, I'm with you. super cool even though he was, had a shit oh, he was. Don't, don't get me wrong he was yeah. brilliant um but when he said all right mate and it was the worst aussie accent I've yeah, ever heard, i had a bit of a cringe but anyway he, he still was super cool by the way so uh yeah, really yeah. love that 
Rob, thank you so much. I really enjoyed going through these questions. I'm going to, I, I, we're going to tail off the uh, the podcast. We could talk for hours, by the way, couldn't we? I, I think, I think there's there's a couple of beers behind just sitting down and having a chat about some of these old war films. So we'll we'll talk about that later. But um, let's do that. Um, but the the quick fire three. I love my quick fire three at the end of a podcast because it just gets okay. the gets the gets what's at the top of your head. And and my first one would be. Have you ever, you know, you've been in the industry not that long but uh, a, a while um, and you've had tremendous success and you continue to have tremendous success. But have you ever had that, oh, I've made it moment? And if so, what was it? Um, two, I'll keep it quick. There were two two premiers. Mike Bassett, England manager, premier in yeah. Leicester Square. Uh, my wife Anna was pregnant with our first kid. Uh, I, I hire a bloody limo and my mum and dad and my wife, we turn up there, my dad you know, watches the movie, he loves it, goes to the art show party, and there's, like, Richard Branson there. My dad's going, my son wrote that, my son wrote that. So that was quite <laughs> a nice moment. Uh, and the other one was probably the uh, Nomi and Juliet premiere in L.A., where we were out at the El Capitan, like this massive, great big, uh, you know, legendary 30 cinema on Sunset Boulevard. Yeah, no, it was. I was sitting in the audience with my wife, and Elton John comes out at the middle of the stage on one of those organs which rise up, playing Crocodile Rock, which is the first single I ever bought. And he's playing it on a thing and it's coming out. And I'm thinking, yeah, I wrote this movie. <laughs> That's awesome. That is pretty good. I defy anyone who's been a guest on my podcast to say that Elton John's come out and sang, uh, you know, on their movie or around their movie premiere. And That's brilliant. I love that. Um, number two, what was your dream job when you were younger? Was the, You know, we spoke about being an actor and, and all that kind of stuff. What was the dream job as a kid? I just knew I wanted to do something special and uh, I kind of I wanted to be a football player. I love football. I wanted to be an actor. But, but all those things were slightly interchangeable. I think the best answer is when I was eight years old, my teacher said to me, went around the class, what do you all want to do? What do you all want to do? I said, what do you want to do? And I said, I either want to be a millionaire or a tramp. And she said, why? And I said, well, in both cases, no one gets to tell me what to do. Oh, that's, that's genius. That's I can see a postcard in that. <laughs> you know, we could market that. There's a T-shirt right there, I think, Rob. <laughs> That's brilliant. I love that. Me and Air or Tramp, why? No one tells me what to do. I love it. I love it. On the, <laughs> on the back of the shirt. That's brilliant. Um, if money wasn't an object, what's the one thing that you would buy? Probably uh, a house by the sea for my wife. Oh, that's nice. She's born in South End, lived by the sea, and uh, you know, we'll, you know, maybe when uh, we're a bit older and the kids have all buggered off, that's what we'll do. Ah, that's the dream, isn't it? When they all go. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. love it. I love it, Rob. Thank you so much for your time this afternoon. I've, I've, I've really enjoyed it. We, we, uh, we should have had a bottle of wine or a beer over it, but I, I, I dare say that we'll do that um, uh, some other time when it's not recorded and we can be a little bit more open and opus, honest and, and maybe a bit more colourful with our language, right? <laughs> That'd be great. Good on you, Rob. Thank you so much for your time today, mate. And uh, good luck with the, with the, with the next. What's, what's the next film, by the way? And do you want to give it a plug? Uh, well, there's a couple. I've, I've just written Heidi. This is kind of me just as a pet, you know jobbing writer. But uh, my my big one, which I'm doing, which I'm directing, is about flamingos. Uh, I won't go into too much detail, but uh, yeah, it's flamingos. It's an animation. Flamingos animation. Rob Sprackling, thank you so much for your time. We're looking forward to seeing the premiere of it. Okay, mate. Good on you. Thanks. All right, Paul. Bye. 
Thanks so much to you, Rob, for joining us uh, on the Vanguard podcast today. And, you know, one of the things that I really loved about Rob was his honesty about being rubbish at school and, you know, pivoting, going from drama college to comedy to finding what he really enjoys doing and, and then becoming an expert at it. You know, there's so many lessons that we can learn from Rob's journey, the way he really went and pursued his dreams, and I just love listening to that. Thanks so much, Rob, and good luck with all those movies that are coming out in the near future. Thanks for joining us again today, everyone, and remember, take care, stay safe, and keep on innovating.